Blog Talk Radio. Because as 
much as we are supposed to try to make our lives better, our purpose on this planet is to make our children's lives better. And what's what's killing me, uh, you know, what's killing me is that we have so many people. You know, I saw somebody say the Obama Negro whisperers, if you will, that's playing this role because these folks are the pundits that get put on TV to tell white folks what black people think. That role is about to come to an end. That role is coming to an end. No President Obama, no need for those people. And they're all jumping on the ban- on this Hillary bandwagon. And it's interesting. It's real interesting. I was talking to Brother O, and you guys know Brother Olu, who's always called into the show, great brother, great friend. And we were talking about how, you know, the how the parents of the slain African Americans are, you know, they, they team Hillary. And it's just amazing to see this unfold. When I got Trayvon Martin's mom, who I'm going to play a clip of later on in the show, when we talk more about this politics, who comes out and she's, you know, getting on Bernie and, you know, she's giving her soliloquy. And I'm thinking to myself, don't you understand why Zimmerman killed your son? Don't y'all understand? Zimmerman did to Trayvon what Hillary said that you had to do. He was trying to make Trayvon heal. Remember, to Hillary, young fellas like Trayvon, Martin, are super predators. Sandra Blamar, you rolling with Hillary too. You don't understand why that cop had a problem with your daughter? These are these are politics. And if you're not careful, if you're not careful, you'll find yourself aligning yourself with the same people who are the source of your pain and agony. I'm going to say that one more time because it's it's kind of hard. It's it's missed on our people. The one thing I like about social media and the other thing I it's like a like don't like about social media is this. Social media shows you why we're in the position we're in. It shows you exactly uh some of the flaws in our thinking, but the good thing about it is it exposes it to you. Sort of like being exposed uh, to some germs and being able to fight those germs off. You really have to understand what's going on with us as a people. Uh, I want people to call in tonight, 347-826-9600. I want folks to, to really think about what I'm saying here because the politics is real. You know, we we get up, 
we get upset. Uh, we are, we, we got, man, I, I love Joy Reid. Oh, man, y'all, you got to understand I love Joy Reid. You know, just not just because she's chocolate, but I think she's a very intelligent sister. I love hearing her on the news. I thought, you know, in, in my opinion, I watch MSNBC for Tamron Hall and uh, Joy Reid. I know Joy Reid normally gives us some great insight. She's very intelligent. But, Sister Joy Reid, I'm disappointed in you. I am outright disappointed in you. I, I feel like, in the end, you know, Melissa Harris Perry already jumped ship. They already snatched Joe's show, Sister. You might as well come on ahead and, and, and baptize in the light. And come out and tell us the real deal Holyfield. Ain't no need to keep faking. See, that's our problem as a people, man. We got all these fakers, you know, folks who, who die in the fake. Die in the fake. Die in the be fake. You know, th- that's our problem. You you come on, oh, well, Bernie's talking about the ghetto. Well, sister, Too Short made a song called The Ghetto. I lived in the ghetto most of my life. A lot of partners I know lived in the ghetto. A lot of classmates lived in the ghetto. I I know the bougie black folks. Y'all use the term ghetto. Y'all put that term on black people you don't even like. Just separate yourself. I ain't ghetto. You got people living in the ghetto talking about they ain't ghetto. Now all of a sudden because he says... He doesn't know what it's like to be black, to live in the ghetto, is now a slight in 2016. I know a lot of Biggie Small fans, they were celebrating the death. I shouldn't celebrate mourning the death, whatever it is, of uh, the late notorious B.I.G. But man, Tupac is rolling over in his grave right now. It's it's almost embarrassing being a Generation Xer, watching some of my fellow Generation Xers on TV, watching some of the new millennium in the Generation Ys, and just you got to just shake your damn head sometimes. You really do. We sold out for the money. Point blank, the politics are real. Can you give me a show? Can you give me a job? Can you buy my mama a house? Can you buy me a house? Whatever you got to do, Mr. White Man, to make me not be like them, them being those black folks who refuse to play ball. Some black folks think that it's because black people don't want to get an education. That's why they are the way they are. Well, you know, we got more degrees now than we ever had before, and we still ain't got much. We still ain't got much. It ain't because we don't pray. It's just because we fall for these tactics, these these politics. Hillary Clinton, 
Mommy, as I call it, M-O-M-I, the mother of mass incarceration. When you can see her sweeping through the South, places the home of Jim Crow, the Bible Belt. You got James Clyburn out there looking greasy, talking about voting. know we in trouble you know we in trouble you know we got these issues because quite frankly y'all as African Americans we just haven't matured politically we have not we still play politics and business with our hearts. Jealousy, fear, anger. If you do anything in business that way, you're going to lose. You can't vote that way either. Well, Bernie Sanders is promising all this free stuff. And he won't be able to deliver. Well, I mean, hey, what did President Obama really deliver on that he gave you? He said, "Yes, we can." What have they been able? What 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 have he been able to do? I'm not blaming the president. You know, you, you can't blame Obama how the, for the how the Republicans act. They're like they ain't got no damn sense. You can't blame President Obama for these people calling, you know, the the Obama, the magic Negro, and all. How, how does he get blamed for that? So you can't you can't blame him for that. Just like you can't blame black folks for what happens in politics. You can't. How do we blame our people? Oh, well, folks don't go out and vote in the primaries. Yeah, you think that's the problem? Because I can prove to you that that's not the problem. It's not about people not voting in the primaries. Look, here's here's, here's simple, simple math, right? So the Republicans, you know, the crooked cats, you know, the real crooked racist, and I mean, and they are crooked and they're racist. This is is fact, and it's not all of them, but the majority of them. So if you go with the majority, we we say the majority speaks for all of them. They have one man, one vote. You vote in the Republican primary, you win the popular vote, you win all the delegates. It's pretty simple. Cut and dry. Democrats, on the other hand, well, you might get some delegates. You might get some super delegates. But it's not based off the populist vote? No, it's not. And let's be frank. The main people telling you it's your fault because you ain't out voting is the Democrats. They're not breaking down to you when they when they have our people come out and they say, you need to vote. They're not breaking down to you how this thing works, how this presidential election works. Bernie Sanders won the populist vote in Iowa. 
the delegates decided to go with Hillary. Look it up. Look it up. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. I would love to make it up. But look it up. Bernie won the populist vote inside of uh inside of Michigan. If he was a Republican, he would have won all of the delegates. But since he's not a Republican, right? Since he's not a Republican, he has to split the delegates with Hillary. How politics is. These are politics. Because, see, the thing is, the one person, one vote thing, I just told you right there, really, that doesn't work unless you're a Republican to choose a president. The flip side of it is, you know, the flip side to it is this. The superdelegates are not Democratic-appointed delegates. They're more like corporatists. So when they go and they tell you that Hillary got this absurd lead over Bernie Sanders, a lot of that is the superdelegates. A lot of that is that gerrymandered way of counting the votes, the, the who are for and who are against. It has nothing to do necessarily with the populist vote. It doesn't. Another sad fact. Even while, even while Bernie is losing to Hillary, he's losing in states where, come election time, the Democrats won't win them. That's just a fact. You think you win in Mississippi? Man, you got to be kidding me. Obama ain't in this thing. You think you win in South Carolina? Obama didn't win. He didn't win South Carolina, and he didn't win Mississippi. So, to me, when we see our black leaders, supposedly, pushing us in this direction and telling us who we need to be for and why we need to be for, it's time for us to question that. If you want to get off the plantation, first thing is you got to understand why you shouldn't be on the plantation. Then you need to come up with a plan. When you come up with the plan, the next thing is you got to look out for the booby traps. Don't be the booby to fall in a trap. And politics, politics, my friends, that's how they keep you on the plantation. Hey, Brother Mac, how you doing today? Brother Aiden? Rico. What's up, brother? How you doing? I'm all right, man. How about yourself? Oh, man, I am doing great today. Did you enjoy that weather out there today, brother? Brother, man, I I tried my best to get out there as much as possible, but unfortunately I had a a, a five-year-old sick with the flu, man, so I had to be in the house taking care and nursing him back to health. But 
the little bit of time that I did get a chance to get out. It was beautiful, bro. Oh, well, I hope nephew is feeling all right. Yeah, yeah, he's he's getting better. He's he's bouncing around already. Yeah, you get a chance to check out some of these debates, man, and check out some of these talk, man. I'm telling you, this, these politics has been rich. Yeah, you know, honestly, um, I've been a moved, and I have to apologize to the listening audience and and even my community because um, I've been catching this uh, excerpt, this vitamin C, some excerpts of um, the, the the debate between Trump and Cruz and. You know, and then Hillary and um, Sanders, and you know, I'm trying to keep up as much as I can, but I haven't been able to just really fully immerse myself into understanding different points of view. But I'm just kind of aware of the general popular hype. Right, right. Well, let me ask you this, because I know you would, you know, I know you would know a lot about this as well. I, what I what I'm finding that is is rich in this election cycle, and I you know the show is you know we're talking about politics and you know how they uh-huh. us, you know how to keep us politically tricked. You know, there's one man, one vote. Oh, if you didn't vote in in the um, if you didn't vote during the primaries, uh, you're hurting your candidate. Knowing that most black folks will vote for the Democrats, and the Democrats. Hey, they pretty much got this. Uh, they they got this process kind of jerry rigged already, where uh-huh. you know one person one vote don't count. I mean, what do you think about that? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think um, as the demographics of America has changed over the course of sixty, seventy years, there's always been methods behind the large political black bodies to really. Um, really void the one-vote policy, the one-vote power of uh, democracy in America. And I think that's that's just kind of the nature of how they've always used strategies and schemes to try to pull the vote from the common people and keep it in the hands of the wealthy, keep it in the hands of the middle class, and keep it in the hands of the larger contributors to campaigns. So it's always just to make sure that there's always levels of mechanisms to make sure they get their proper candidate in office when they need to do so. Yeah, no, definitely, no doubt. You know, I, I was tripping about, tripping off how, you know, I was looking at the Republican primary, and I said, man, it's crazy. The biggest crooks, supposedly, right out of the two, uh, have this primary where if you are a Republican voter, you could have more of an influence on your candidate for president than you can if you're a Democrat. And, Adrian, I, mm. I, I want to know, how much do you think that is because mostly uh, so-called minorities are the reason, you know, are the, uh, are the members of the, of the Democratic Party? Do you, think this, do you think that's a mechanism implemented Base to keep to keep those minorities in check, if you will. I think so, to some extent. I mean, I don't know the full details, but it's interesting that when the Republican Party was hijacked by the Dixiecrats in the seventies, that it became very corporate white, and a lot of the radical foundations that was really a part of the Democratic emergence of the Dixiecrats. Um, 
became the foundational beliefs of the Republican Party. Um, but essentially, it remained kind of a, a white capitalist class dominated philosophy and ideology into political schemes of how government is ran. And they have not, the Republican Party has not did a good job. And I don't know if that's even their intentions to try to create a diverse um, background with their political constituents. So right. with the Democratic Party um, being now, well, I won't say now, but at one point in time, the, the party of the people um, adopting some of the um, the labor policies of the 40s and the 50s and um, combining a lot of the labor politicians and foundations into um, their, their st- political strategies over the course of 40, 50 years, it's really garnered a lot of Latinos who are coming into the country in the last 56 years. African-Americans converted over in droves almost seems like overnight after the Roosevelt administration. And everybody else who comes to become more aware of the political party tends to go more Democrat, um, except for your East Indians. Right, right, right. More Republican. But, but anyway, so... It's it's not it's not a coincidence that those who are strong contributors to the GOP have seems like a more direct tie to their political outcome that they envision for their vote, for their cast, for their ballot, for their block. Well Democratic right. Party is while consists of a larger, diverse background than the Republican Party, they have implemented or pushed a lot of legislations and policies along with the Republican Party to disenfranchise um, a lot of groups of people um, based on different policies, whether it's ID, whether it's uh, uh, felony backgrounds, whether it's demographics and property, whether it's geography and where you're at. There's always been mechanisms to try to control and distance the, the person from their political vote and power. And that's just the history over the last 45 years, a very general summarized and kind of watered-down history of democratic strategies over the last 40, 50 years. So I think you're right. There could be an argument made that the Republican Party, the Tea Party, the GO, and I mean the Republican Party and their, their right-wing, left-wing GOP and the Tea Party of corporate mm. class people who put their dollars directly to their politics, whereas... Democratic Party is still trying to ride off a liberal politics that um, create representation of the people in office and distance that relationship between the ballot and the power that comes out of it. Um, so, yeah, I think there's some truth to what you're saying that could be made that argument. Yeah, I, I'm definitely going to do more research into it because to me, in my opinion, you know, I, and like I said, I know it's America. I know we got the so-called minorities uh, that do vote for the Democrats most of the time. But to me, man, it almost comes up to that three-fifth compromise thing, if, if you mm-hmm. ask me, Adrian, mm-hmm. where if mm-hmm. uh, a, a Bernie Sanders can run through, win Michigan by 20,000 votes, right, Um mm-hmm. You win by 20,000 votes, but yet and still, at the end of the night, you only, from that one state, you only take home, I think, seven to nine more delegates than the person you beat. That's, that's mm. amazing. 
Mm-hmm. And that's something to think about. That's something to think about. I know someone would probably say, well, hey, well, the delegates make up the region. But if, if this is a democracy, uh, if we were in a class election, we had a mayoral race, I wouldn't give a rat's ass if uh, the majority of the people who live in the Powderhorn area voted for one mayor, right, or uh, one one. Uh, the students inside of the home met class voted for one candidate. Hey, at mm-hmm. the end is winner take all. We're talking true democracy, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. And I think um, I think that's where we're misled. I think, I, I, and I agree with you. It's supposed to be a democracy. I mean, this is what the documents, the Constitution, amendments, the legislations, and everything supposedly is idealistically promoting through nationalism of America that by being a citizen you have these liberties, you have these rights, you have these political privileges that creates a relationship between your government and your opinion and your vote. And unfortunately it's good on paper. It sounds really good. It reads good. It makes you think that the founding fathers, if you wasn't abreast of history, was the most um altruistic and envisionary groups of men to walk the earth. But the reality is that we live in a representative um, government. Um, You know, we live in a a government that's based on electing certain people as representation of your political ideas and views, and they end up possessing this power to be able to dictate who is in office, who's in legislation, who's in the judicial branch, who's in the legislative piece. And right. and that's that's where we start to realize like through schemes, through business, through lobbying, through relationships, um, that we don't necessarily live in a democracy and there's always again strategies to undermine and and um and um and, and marginalize people's ability to express express their democratic vote, uh, their dem- uh, democratic practices, and to be able to be involved in the political outcomes of their lives. So mm. we live in a re- uh, a represent a representative form of government, and it's not a democracy. Democracy is always something we're trying for. It's always something that's in practice. Always something that we're trying to create. And that's Sergio, that's Sergio Marshall's work is that you never really arrive at a state of democracy. It's always something that is continuously practiced by the people and practiced by the government. And unfortunately, you have people in office who want to put the badge and the honor and the icon of we live in a democracy, but everything that they do to maintain this status quo in office is against democratic uh, ideas and practices. And see that, and that's and see that's the main thing. So that's the main thing. See that that's what I'm talking about, bro. And that that exactly right there. So when you really think about it, and you think about how how this thing is being advertised, and I'm and I'm, I'm thinking about our people because our people we beat up on each other. I had a conversation with some brothers earlier today in, inside of Facebook, and the the conversation was pretty much like it's always thrown at black folks' feet any time the politics in this country is wrong. It's almost like, well, well black folks don't vote. And I'm, and I'm thinking to myself, well, man, you keep saying black folks don't vote. Here's a couple of things that folks ain't paying attention to. Uh, how about when they, uh, how about when they rig uh, the, 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 uh, the election, uh, the elections 
uh, so that certain um, districts are more rural than city. So you could take uh, in some states, you know, they'll cancel out the majority of black districts just so that they could have a Republican candidate on the bill. Or you could you would have two uh, Democrats running against each other after redistricting uh, so that they can uh-huh. knock it out, knock each other out. If you uh, look into uh, Ohio, uh, the, the, the latest uh, case that I, I can remember is with Dennis Kucinich and Sherrod Brown, both very liberal um, politicians who somehow through redistricting, both of them yeah. ended up running against each other. Sherrod Brown mm. ended up winning and knocking Dennis Kucinich out. But in the end, it was redistricting that done that. Uh, prior yeah. to that, both of them were able to be inside of Congress as two Democratic, uh, or, or, you know, Democratic elected uh, congressmen. But afterwards, mm-hmm. you know, after the redistricting, hey, one had to lose a job. And you see that all the time. And, and to me, Brother Agers, it's kind of funny. It's almost like we believe the advertisement more than we believe the actual truth. I mean, what do you think about mm-hmm. that? I think that's true. I think that's real. I think we're more inclined to think of our own personal lives or think um, of the common narrative that black people just don't get involved with politics. And that's not entirely accurate. Uh, history doesn't state that. You know, history doesn't validate that notion and that narrative. But anytime you have a common narrative that's circulated amongst the public like that and written on, talked about, and just kind of purported as truth, then there's always a political scheme in the background. Redistricting was always a strategy since the 40s to really divide the black population up, divide the black vote up into um, small fragments in order to maintain a certain group of people getting into office. Chicago right. was one of the earliest cases with um, Mayor Daly, but it was uh, a mayor back in um, the early 1920s. And um, Ida B. Wells organized the Alpha Suffrage Club to really organize the black women in Southside Chicago to really get behind this uh, alderman or this black alderman who was running for office and to get behind this so-called mayor who was to have these ties to the mob and stuff like that. And when they saw the political power come up from black women who at the time didn't have the right to vote but was connected to all the black men who were going mm-hmm. to cast the ballot, those right. politicians became very aware of the political block of black people in, in geographic spaces. And one of the earliest strategies that they employed was like, we have to break the South Side Chicago um, uh, uh, district line up so that this does not happen again. Um, we can't right. allow another black alderman being elected based on black people coming together and say we're going to get behind this one messianic savior in politics. And so you have these earlier forms and practices of dividing the city line up directly in the center point, in a, in a focal center point of the black community. Mm-hmm. It happened here in North Minneapolis. Um, and uh, Don Samuels and uh, um, Natalie Johnson Lee was running for office, and um, Natalie was first running, and then all of a sudden the whole uh, the ward over here got redistricted, and then you had this new kind of uh, representation popped up, and then boom, you had Don Samuels running against Natalie Lee, who was always, you know, 
political comrades in 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 politics and it was it divided up the community it, it pitted relationships against other relationships it created some division amongst people's political backgrounds and and perspectives and it really created a, a disjointed and fragmented political block that black people could have had over here in North Minneapolis so it's it's everywhere i remember Hollis Watkins talking about that in um, um Mississippi and how they had to fight against uh, some of the redistricting policies of uh, different cities inside of um, Mississippi in order to elect a governor, then elect the mayors, and elect elect different people on the county level. So it's a ploy. Um, it's no different than um, um, people using the felony piece and trying to stop people from casting a vote based on their background check. It's no different than IDs being um, um, require mandate in order to go in and catch it. No different than all the different strategies that have risen up after 1965 to justify disenfranchising and and, and destroying the, the human. And you know what, brother? Let me ask you this question. While I got you here, because man, you, you you hit that out out of the man, you hit that out the park. Now, when we when we talk about the redistricting, right? I'm just mm-hmm. wondering. Because we, we, every election, we get this people, we call it, you know, Brother Rodney and me talk about people getting this walking around money. You know, they, 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 they give folks walking around money. And I'm talking mm-hmm. about the major parties. And these people who got this walking around party, do you, do you think that they, they are made aware of this? Because sometimes you can have people doing politics not because they necessarily know better. They're just going with the flow. Or do you think that, you know, do we have people who are accidentally doing these things, are accidental agents, or do you think these people are doing this and they know and they're just shrugging their shoulders like, hey, who cares? Give me this money. I, I think it's always going to be a combination. It's always going to be a combination. I, I don't – I look at some of the uh, local and some of the larger regional politics of Minnesota, and I can't, I, I can't say that all parties have been aware of the strategies of their particular – um, block or their political campaign. I, some of them have just been innocent bystanders. Um, well, ain't nobody really ever. Some of them have just been, you know, uh, um, inconspicuous and just really didn't, wasn't aware, just really trying to live, uh, run an honest campaign. Some were aware of the strategies and wanted to try to stay on the peripheral to not necessarily become um, agents of it. And then some were well aware. I think all what you said is correct. And I just, it might more so contribute to the experience, time, and effort that that particular person who's running in, or in office or leading the campaign is aware of those type of issues strategies. So I, it's always just a combination of the three or four different angles and perspectives. And how could the American population, the American community know about that? We don't. We don't. You know, and I think that speaks to how it, we really have to sit down with our um our our community delegates and our community um 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 uh, Proponents who want to run for office and put them in your um, their their your room, your living room and ask them questions, understand what's their background, what do they understand these things, and try to develop relationships as much as possible right. to figure out if there's if you can pick up some hidden agenda, if you can pick up some um, 
favorable relationship to larger political ideas or is this person genuinely running for office because they see the potential of themselves contributing to the community in that type of manner. So it's, it's, I think that's one of the best ways that we could practice democracy on a small local level in our lives is sitting down with these folks, not just looking at, you know, complexion, not just looking at certain ideas or not just looking at things from a card, but somehow we have to shake folks' hands and try to spend some time with them to figure out where they're coming from. Yeah, to shake their hands and pull them close and ask them in their ears, so who's really saying? That's right. That's right. That's right. You got to look them directly in the eye. <laughs> <laughs> hey, so let me ask you this, because, we, we, you know, my, my, my new um, – my new uh, label for Hillary Clinton is Mommy. That's M-O-M-I. That stands for Mother of Mass Incarceration. So I'm, I'm watching, you know, I'm watching Mommy here on, um, I'm watching her on, on these debates. And it seems like, you know, I, I know the pundits, they love to give her and Trump flavor, and they always say that they do such a masterful job. I know, I, I watched last night, and, man, Bernie Sanders kicked her ass. And yeah. I, while I was watching and I was laughing because she she does this thing where she's so sarcastic in her response, right? Uh, mm-hmm. It's almost like you know she she feels like she's the smartest idiot in the room. But while mm-hmm. while I was listening to her um, do her thing, I was thinking to myself about all of these black politicians, and we both were you know raised in the '90s. Um, you know that's we spent our teenagers. I, I want to ask you, man. What do you think about, you know, the, the, the James Clyburns and, uh, you know, a lot of the media pundits, even my man Roland Martin, who I, I'm still, you know, Roland, if if anybody can, can play this to Roland, please ask Roland, before Saturday's town hall meeting, can he please, uh, can he disclose to us, is he part Cherokee, uh, part Native, or is that a box perm on top of his head? I don't know. Is that a Duke? Uh, is that an S-curl? What the hell is that, brother? But anyway, Adrian, I, I'm just tripping on how these pundits are so slanted to Hillary. Have they forgotten? Mm. Mm. I, you know, I I haven't figured out entirely what and how the Clintons were able to really get a strong leeway into black middle class um, because that's any. And the black middle class and the relationship between black working class and black middle class is always still going to be kind of intact, regardless of how fragmented we are on various issues. Anytime the black middle class is strongly about something like the Clintons, you're going to find a large percentage of the black working class favoring in that way, too. But it's, it's interesting because it's, it's like I look at the political strategy of Bill Clinton in the 90s, and um, and I'm pretty sure you know the guy who was behind his campaigns. I can't even call his name. They were very, like, I, I, I have to give them, like, a serious ingenuity to how they positioned themselves to garner that vote. Um, it wasn't hard in some effects, though, because, again, a lot of people forget that anytime you look at a campaign of a politician, you always have to look at them in the context of, what are they coming out of? What is, what's the backdrop of their political move? So we had a Bill Clinton after a George Bush, and we had a, a Bill Clinton after a Reagan administration. So Reagan and George Bush 
the backdrop to uh, Bill Clinton's move and his move to, to, to political fame. And it wasn't difficult. It wasn't difficult for them to put, um, put position themselves at the NAACP conference. I was there. Bill Clinton was running for office, and he shows up and gives this big speech. It wasn't difficult right. for them to advise him to say certain things towards apologizing um, to the Tuskegee Airmen, it, you know, to be able to discuss reparations in a, a moral terms and not necessarily politically and economically to be able to sit down with John Conyers and have a conversation. And and then the whole con- scandal and controversy I hate to say this, but it pathologized Bill Clinton to have this relationship with black people that was really unhealthy. I mean, not only did the man show up on RCO Hall, but, you know, him having these certain affinities towards black culture made black people feel like that there was this linkage and this association and affirmation of themselves being represented in this white person and adopting the whole family as if right. That's um, that's a black representation. So it's this weird type of dynamic of how um, Bill Clinton was able to find an engrave into black heart, black minds, and then create this really indispensable indispensable relationship between black middle class and themselves to the extent that Hillary Clinton can run for office and not literally do much for black people at all and say much for black people, but mm. run off the trope of her husband's relationship with black middle class and somehow gone into both. So she's getting black attention and affirmation for her husband's name. She's not getting it for any policies that she has stood grounded on. I mean, even with her, uh, her about face against Marion Wright Edelman, and some of the policies that Edelman has pushed in legislation for children's rights, Hillary has been either opposed on, um, silent on, or um, or very kind of slow to progress and uh, and move on uh, when it comes to legislation. And Mary Wright Edelman right. has spoken publicly against Hillary Clinton on those uh, policies around children, but it's because of her relationship with the name the relationship with the name has with black middle class that we're finding this connection um, to Clinton. Our pundits, I, you know, we, we first have to think they, they could be a strong, proliferated and, uh, and, and intelligent as like a Roland Martin. The reality is that he still has a career first. And his career trumps his political ideas, his social ideas in every facet. He's not going to say the things that's going to garner and galvanize the critical mass of the black folk, but he's going to be in sharp enough to be able to put some of the questions, the hard questions on people to be able to address certain things to the extent that his um, syndication will allow him to do, because again, it's career first. So right. if part of supporting Clinton means that I'm going to um I'm going to uh, uh, be able to gain numbers and, and ratings amongst large percentages of black middle class and black upper class then I have to make sure that I'm aligning myself with the Clinton policies and ideas. 
even if they ain't done much for black people. And everybody know, everybody have looked at the track sheet of the Clintons and know that very like there's only a small percentage of what Bill Clinton did for black people. He was able to raise the unemployed uh, uh, raise employment up to a certain percent of a, a slight margin during his whole eight years. But that's pretty much it. You know, he's done right. a whole lot more that was anti-black than he has done black. So I think we're going to see the tell of a tape when Clinton. Uh, Clinton. I always kind of measure these things based off of. Um, my boy Cornell, Cornell West. And a lot of people don't kind of wrote him off because of his stance against Obama. But Cornell West, West was very much a Clinton man. He was a Clinton man. And West right. has been kind of silent on Hillary's move in our campaign. So well, he, he, we'll, he criticized the last week. We could, he he called her okay. out last and week. I think, he said yeah, she was a fraud. She was a fraud. And that's most important piece. It's not to say that West is the quintessential black pundit, but he's the temperature. I, I'm confident enough that I can gauge the temperature of black pundits and black intellectuals amongst the middle class by listening to that because whatever West tends to side on, whether you agree with them or not, it's hard to argue against whether or not the masses of a Tavis Smiley and a group of people like them are joining that flock and ideas because you, you know you just, West tends to just read the temperature of the people and just state things in this large eloquent way but he's really just kind of echoing what the black middle class is saying so if he's critical on he, he, he what he tends to if he's critical on Hillary then yeah I mean there, we might have some shift in politics going on well you know I, I think Cornell know see I, I, here's the thing and, and and just engage with me on a little bit of this right here. This is what I think happened in 2008. For one, I, I think collectively, I think a large portion of the black middle class got amnesia. But they always get amnesia. They, 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 we always tend to forget. I, I, I think people kind of forget that the tone uh, that Bill Clinton had talked about President Obama leading up to the South Carolina South Carolina, um, you know, up into that uh, election, you know, where uh-huh. the primary, where he, he, he told Harry Reid, you know, a few years ago he would have been serving as tea. Uh-huh. He wasn't speaking about President Obama as he respected him. That's one thing. I also think that a lot of the black middle class forgot the arm twisting that went on Obama to get Hillary to drop out of the race Obama had to give up a lot In my opinion Brother Adrian You know, I I think a lot of the criticism that Brothers like myself or yourself Would have for President Obama I think a lot of that comes Because Obama had to give up a lot He probably won't never admit it It probably will never be written in books But I'm almost thinking that Obama Had to bend down, kiss the pinky uh, he had to kiss that pinky ring of Bill Clinton in order to get Hillary Clinton to drop out the race. And, and what I mean by that, brother, is that if President Obama never would have allowed Hillary Clinton to be the national uh, defense secretary, right, I don't think she would have dropped out of the race. And if you think about running for president, 
uh, outside of domestic policies, the first thing that they're going to ask you about is foreign policies. That's the first. Oh, so what, so what is that person's foreign policy? What is the foreign experience? They ask that about everybody except Donald Trump, right? Donald Trump, all he can tell you is China's stealing that stuff, and I'm going to build this wall and from Mexico, and it's going to be a very big wall, very big, and it's going to be very pretty, too, very pretty. I mean, talking about the king of redundancy. But I think, uh, Brother Adrian, in 2008, that was the deal that was made. I think Obama was strong-armed in taking Hillary in. I think that he was strong-armed not only to take Hillary in. I, I think it was an agreement made that Joe Biden was not going to run for president. It's almost it's almost unheard of to see a president be successful for eight years, and his vice president does not does not run for uh, uh, you know president uh, after the eight years is up. Have you ever heard of that before, Adrian? I don't. I, I haven't. I mean, it makes sense, and I haven't really outside heard of, Cheney, of it. But outside I, of Dick Cheney. Outside of Dick Cheney. Yeah, I think I, I agree. I think there had to be some type of behind closed door deal and conversation that kind of stipulated their political outcomes and careers of the next few people to make it make sense. Go ahead. And and, and the other thing that I'm, I'm thinking about too is this: I'm also looking at the fact that if you notice since 2008, politics is like baseball; they always keep a new politician in the bullpen. Somebody's always in in the bullpen pitching, they always it's always some fresh blood. You know, you need the fresh blood. You need the fresh face because hey, they know that the American people like new things. You always like a new person, a new slogan. Outside of Elizabeth Warren, outside of Elizabeth Warren, and it was fear. It was fear on the on the part of the Clintons uh, that Elizabeth Warren was going to run for office and she was going to knock Hillary out. That uh, that. The fear was that she was going to be the fresh face of the party, so they did a lot of things to kind of to uh, you know, and it kind of sent some some warning uh, shots to Elizabeth Warren to let her know, hey, if she gets in, they go, you know, they're gonna they're gonna ugly her face up, right? So what I've noticed what happened since 2008 after the rise of this unknown senator from Chicago, this freshman senator uh, becoming president and knocking Hillary out, is that if you look at the Democratic Party, Brother Adrian, they have not been pulling anybody out the bullpen. There is no young, exciting Democratic congressman outside of Elizabeth Warren. There's no young, exciting Democratic senator. And what I'm saying, brother, is in 2008, I think the deal was set in stone. No matter what was going to happen, the Democrats was not going to do anything more than to allow Hillary to get her way. What do you think, brother? I'm sorry, brother. I had to unmute my phone. Uh, yeah, I, I think so. And I, I think you got a real good assessment on that. And we have not seen young Democratic leadership rising up in the party yet. And I think there has been some agreements within, like, influential positions within the party that have dictated who's going to have what campaign in what term and what year. And I think it does speak to 
So I would say the dynasty or the regime of the Clintons, you know, um, the type of power that they have, the type of pull that they got, um, the influence that they might have. You might can throw the Clintons up there with the Bush, you know, as far as their family influence on a political party. Bush, for the most part, for 20, 30 years, and if you even go back to the uncles, um, in the 40s, 30s, and 40s, had a strong hold on the Republican Party. Um, and so when you think about the Clintons' reign within the 90s to now, you know, they've always been a relevant personality, you know, within their, the, the Democratic Party. And it's just a matter of time before people start talking about Chelsea Clinton looking for some type of office or some type of position. And then, you know, there's a long a, a family contingent uh, contingency that's happening within the political party to keep the Clintons relevant. So I think right. you're right, man. That's a real honest assessment. I can't entirely support it with facts and substantial evidence, but it seems easy to draw a conclusion that there has been some agreement, there has been some hand kissing, there has been some um, um, con- uh, con- reconciliation between. Um, political votes, uh, organization, impact that it would have on a democratic power base in various states and various cities. I mean, because if Clinton would have stayed in in that Obama run, yeah, you're right. It probably would have fragmented the Republican Party. I, I mean, the Democratic Party. I was thinking to some extent that that's what Donald Trump is going to end up doing. If he doesn't get the nomination, He's going to fragment the Republican Party, and I mean, um, I mean, that's a good thing. But he's going to push conservative right-wing politics of the Republican Party so far right that they're they're almost, in a sense, um, a, a campaign and a party of their own. And it's going to create different factions, different ideas, and different philosophies within the Republican Party. And the only thing that's going to rehabilitate them or even give them any type of clout is to finally go after Latino, Native, Asian, Black vote and change the party dramatically. So I think to some extent Donald Trump might be putting the nail in the coffin to the Republican Party. Well, you know what? I was thinking that too, but every time I, I thought that in 2008. I thought that uh, my man Howard Dean had the Democrats poised to pretty much kill off the Republican Party. Uh, it's rare that you have one party have the House, have the Congress, have the Senate. And, you know, what I what I saw, and maybe because now I can look back at it, and I, I always felt like the Democrats were pulling punches. I thought that in 2010, I felt like Debbie Wasserman Schultz and party, they allowed the election to slip through their hands. I think in 2012, it was the fact that, hey, Obama was getting treated so bad by these racist uh, Republicans that the country responded and they supported them. And then I think, you know, 2014, once again, what was the Democrats' uh, slogan? What were they trying to do? They, then they end up losing the Senate, and they had the House loss, and then you just got the Congress, and now you got this gridlock. And no matter how you slice it, no matter how you dice it, I, I, I remember two things about the Democrats being in power. I remember that, one, 
they, and, and a lot of black people haven't really paid attention to this, they targeted the Congressional Black Caucus like nobody's business. And, and, and I think people have to really look at that. I, I almost wonder sometimes, was that almost that thing like, you know, I'm going to take out Obama allies before they have a chance to plan? They'll never have a plan, you know, have a plan against us. They'll never uh, get this momentum where you got these black, uh, you know, you got a black president and you get more black politicians. Like they, you know, Max from Maxine Waters uh, to uh, John Conyers. Uh, who was the other brother that was outside inside of um, the brother Charlie Rangel, and and a lot of others. Uh, we had uh, Representative Jackson from Illinois. He he went under. He got indicted. Remember that long list of black CBC members that were getting indicted? Yeah, that makes sense. I, I remember. I can't remember it. Um, yeah, that, that Nancy the Pelosi the was behind. Person. Nancy Pelosi was behind all of that. She was she was behind that one hundred percent. And I remember some of the CBC members talking about how uh, it, it, it was the Democratic leadership that was doing it. They were really trying to knock out these members of the Congressional Black Caucus, uh, trying to get a lot of a lot of them removed. Now, luckily, Rangel held on to his seat. I shouldn't say luckily. I think fresh blood for Rangel. And Congress has always been a decent guy. But, hey, he did what most politicians do. You get in, use your favor for your family and your friends and your associates. If you don't believe it, all politicians do it. I mean, I would do it, too, if I was a politician. There's no way in hell I'm a politician, and if you're telling me that my son can get a job, right, and my influence is going to give my son a job, I'm going to give my son a job. That's just how it goes. That's human nature. So uh, you, you, you're going to have that in, in, in an arena. But uh, I, I'm saying all that to say that the Democrats, they didn't put out nothing, man. It, it, it's almost like eight years uh, from your favorite uh, actor, eight years from your favorite singer, and no album, no movie. You know what I'm saying, Adrian? Like, that, yeah, that makes uh, sense. It, 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 it's almost outside of Obama uh, and Elizabeth Warren. I mean, those are the only two. It, those are only the only two Democratic figures that you can think of from 2008 to 2016. That people were actually overly excited about. They they're saying right now, brother, that the Democratic Party, no one's excited about Hillary, and that Bernie is getting the excitement, but he just can't get the FaceTime. So I so so to me, brother, those are more the politics, you know, of the plantation uh, politics. Now, brother Adrian, I, I wanted to play this clip. Because I, I wanted to, while I got you on the phone, I got to hear your opinion on this. This is, uh, this is. I know you haven't been keeping up, so this is a, a clip from uh, Bernie Sanders uh, explaining himself about how he doesn't relate. And I, I, I'll definitely, I'm, I'm gonna be quiet after this. I'm gonna be quiet and get your response, brother, because I want to hear what you think. Here, Congress, I went to a meeting downtown in Washington D.C., and I went there with another congressman, an African American congressman. And then we kind of separated during the meeting. And then I saw him out later on. And uh, he was sitting there waiting. And I said, well, let's go out and get a, I'm gonna get a, get a cab. How come you didn't go out and get a cab? And he said, no, I don't get cabs in Washington, D.C. It was about 20 years ago. Because he was humiliated by the fact that cab drivers would go past him because he was black. I couldn't believe, you know, you just sit there and you say, this man did not take a cab 
20 years ago in Washington, D.C. Tell you another story. I was with some young people active in the Black Lives Matter movement. Young lady comes up to me and she says, you don't understand what police do in certain black communities. You don't understand the degree to which we are terrorized. And I'm not just shooting, I'm not just talking about the horrible shootings that we have seen, which have got to end and we've got to hold police officers accountable. I'm just talking about everyday activities where police officers are bullying people. So what, to answer your question, I would say, and I think it's similar to what the secretary said, when you're white, you don't know what it's like to be living in a ghetto. You don't know what it's like to be poor. You don't know what it's like to be hassled when you walk down the street or you get dragged out of a car. And I believe that as a nation in the year 2016, we must be firm in making it clear we will end institutional racism and reform a broken Thank criminal you. justice system. Thank you, Senator Sanders. Senator so, Agent, that controversial, I don't believe it was controversial, let me just say that. Him saying that he doesn't know what it's like to be black living in the ghetto, that caused a lot of controversy because people were thinking that Bernie Sanders was typecasting black folks as saying black people living in the ghetto. I took it, brother, as him saying he doesn't know what it's like to be black living in the ghetto. And, you know, you from the ghetto, I'm from the ghetto. Um, in most of our entire life, I mean, ain't we seen black folk living in the ghetto? And if so, what's the big deal? Floor is yours, brother. So, okay, and I'm going to probably close this out as my last comment because i got to get to my children. So, you know, that's interesting. That's the first time I've heard that. And, again, I have to apologize for being a little detached from a lot of the political campaigns. I'm about to tune back in over the next couple of weeks and try to get caught up. So I'm listening to that comment, and I can't help but to hear um, within his deliberation between the different stories, there was a level of honesty and I could be wrong, but there's a level of honesty and sincerity in him admitting that it's impossible for him to understand the lived experience of African-Americans in Washington, D.C., African-Americans in their everyday lives and their encounterment with law enforcement. Like, I wouldn't trust a white politician who says, I understand, because that is the phrase, the, the jargon, and the 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 political fr- uh, the framing that has pushed a lot of white politicians into the hands of black votes as they say I understand, but to admit that you don't understand, to admit that you're willing to still do something about it, but you don't fully have the visceral experience of black lived experience in communities, that's a straight honest assessment. I mean. That's what Joe Fagan was talking about in his book, Racist America, is that white, I can't remember, um, um, oh, social elixophemia. you got to look this up. It's in the fourth chapter of Joe Fagan's book, Racist America. He calls it social elixophemia. It's the white people have the inability, because of white social framework, they're, un, they're, in a, they're unable to be able to empathize with the experience of other people beyond their whiteness. 
because of white-mindedness, because of white social frame, does not allow them to do that. So it takes them some serious hardcore experiences, some serious observation, some serious uh, participatory uh, livelihood in order to, for them to get a grasp of what other people beyond whiteness experience in this country. So for a politician who tends to have kind of like a socialist backdrop in his policies and his legislation and his beliefs, to be able to still admit that I don't have a full understanding of what it means to be black and trying to capture, catch, catch a cab in Washington, D.C., or to be a young person experiencing um, everyday encounters with law enforcement like that, that's, that's serious because Hillary Clinton wouldn't say that. Donald Trump denies that it exists. Rubio just don't think that is a conversation needs to be had. Ben Carlson says that that's the past. Like, mm. nobody honestly assessed that and says that. And for him to say, I, I fully, I can't say I fully understand, but I'm willing to do something about it. That, that's a serious hallmark. I will pay attention a little bit more to the person who's a little honest about them not having the ability to understand the lived experience of black people than trying to listen to a, a sympathetic white person who says, I understand your plight and struggle. Because that's liberal America all day, every day. That's the structure of liberal policies and liberal interactions. That's the whole backdrop behind social, um, uh, social not in social work, but um, um, uh, reform work and social programming and stuff and, and social services programs um, that are the whole, you know, the foundation behind democratic policies. That's they, they, it's this belief that we can sympathize and we can understand and we can relate to the poverty and the plight of other groups of people. And even from academia to practical lived evidence in America demonstrates that the average white politician really has the slightest clue. Latinos, Chicanos, uh, 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 Chicana, what they call Chicana, Chicano, uh, Chicano, uh, I can't remember how the new new term is. Um, Native Americans, indigenous populations, among Somali brothers and sisters, African continentals, African Americans, everybody who is disenfranchised and really um, struggle with political, social, and economic barriers and and, and targets of law enforcement. Their experience does not rise up to be fully comprehended and understanding by the understood by the white um, average white politician. But yet, all of them will sit up here and say, "I have some understanding. I lived here. I know this person. I can relate." And I kind of would trust a politician who says, "I don't understand." I would trust that because at least for them. They're trying. They're, 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 it's coming from a place of I have to be genuine with what I know. You know, this is right. what I know. And if his policies are still willing to address it, if he's willing to come to the table and sit down and say, I don't know this, but you have to teach this so I can make this right. That I'm, I'm more in a better, a better square position to be able to help my people than listening to somebody who says. I do understand this, and I've worked this, and I've done this 40 years ago, and I know this person. No, I can't trust you, because now you're pulling out your cards to try to continue with the same strategy and agenda. 
So that's all I can contribute to tonight, brother. Thank you for the clip. Thank you for inviting me on. I'm definitely going to try to tune in more and try to be on there with you next week. Hey, look, brother, I appreciate you coming on. I want to thank you tonight, man. Hey, you you uh, definitely uh, you, you definitely gave us some uh, some light. Uh, me through some of my my, my thoughts on uh, this po- this policy, man. Uh, hey, I hope the kids uh, feel well. Tell the wife I said what's up, brother, and we'll definitely hook up this weekend sometime. All right? No doubt, no doubt. Pass the blessings to the family, bro. Talk to you soon. All right, bro. Peace. Peace. And that was Brother Adrian Mack who called in. You know, Adrian is a um, frequent uh, contributor to the show. I definitely want to thank him for uh, calling in. And, you know, we got 17 more minutes to go on the show, so if you want to call in, uh, definitely call 347-826-9600. That's 347-826-9600. I wanted to play another clip. I want to play this clip because this is the clip of Trayvon Martin's mother. Um, it, it was a, it's a little, uh, a nice little news piece that I ran across, you know, with her, you know, speaking on uh, the previous clip of what Bernie Sanders said. And, I, you know, what I want to do is I, I want to play that and then I want to also kind of respond to it. So here we go. Sabrina Fulton, Trayvon Martin's mother, wants Bernie Sanders to know that being black does not automatically mean that you grew up poor or living in the ghetto. During last weekend's Democratic debate, CNN's Don Lemon asked Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders about what their racial blind spots were. Sanders responded by admitting that he, like most white people, didn't know what it's like to be living in a ghetto, adding that they don't know what it's like to be poor. Fulton said in a press release circulated by the Clinton campaign, We need a president who understands black families don't all live in ghettos. Someone who has a plan to end the racial violence that too often plagues families like mine. Not someone who says that guns from Vermont are not the same thing as guns in Chicago, because they are not used for kids in gangs killing other kids or people shooting at police officers. Oh, that wasn't actually the clip I was looking for. I'm sorry. Uh, the, the clip was she she wanted Bernie Sanders to apologize, definitely. But she, you know th- th- this th- this the clip that I saw. I, here's my thing. I, I'm almost like Brother Adrian. You know, I, I'm almost there with Adrian when I heard Bernie say it. But I but I saw the whole thing, so I knew the context that he was coming from. He was just relating and saying, "Hey, in the end." I don't know what it's like to be y'all. I don't relate to it because I didn't have to go through it. Simple enough. In America, when you go to the average ghetto, you do find African Americans. Now, can you find African Americans living in the suburbs? Look, man, I'm, I'm coming to you from the frozen tundra. I'm in. I'm outside of Minneapolis. I don't live in the ghetto, but it does not mean that I don't work in the ghetto. And when I work in the ghetto and the people that I'm around in the ghetto are the same people that I was raised with in the ghetto. I mean, you know, uh, I was listening to um, Dick Gregory, and and he pointed out, he said, you know, no, no, it was Paul Mooney, and he said, you know, know, if you don't think racism is systematic, you can go from city to city and ghetto to ghetto pretty much finding the same setup. 
the same situation, the same decay. So if it's not systematic, what is it? And I can guarantee you the formula in the ghettos in America, the first formula is African-Americans being in the ghetto. If white folks don't have us there, they would import us there in hopes of making a fortune, and they will convert wherever we are into a ghetto. That is a part of feeling powerful. That's a part of controlling and manipulating one's future. We have to be 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 real about this. And, you know, so when oh, you say white folks, do I mean all white people? No, I'm not talking all white people. But I'm talking about the systematic control. And, and the systematic control or the system is controlled predominantly by whites. And the black folks who do get into these spots, they're no different than a rook or a knight on the key, on the chessboard. Yeah, they they are uh you know what you would consider major pieces. But they're not the bishop, they're not the queen and they're not the king whatsoever. They don't hold any water as far as being the final say so. And I I feel that when you look at a lot of the responses to what to Bernie Sanders and, oh, he's promising free college. He clarified that last night. His clarification was, hey, he's offering the same thing that President Obama offered that we were just champion, championing uh, last year. He wants community college and state colleges to be free. What's wrong with that? Then people say, well, if you can get all this free stuff in America, well, wasn't the labor from our ancestors free? Talk about reparations to some white person, politician. You could talk to repar- you could talk about reparations to Bernie Sanders, to be frank, Hillary Clinton, and they think that hey, talking about paying us for something that we did for free, or our ancestors did for free, well, that's just straight uh, divisive. So people in this country are all for the free. They're all for the free, man. Don't believe that people in this country are not for free. Ask the Native Americans. How? What would you know? Do Do you think that the casino checks make up for the millions of bisons that were killed, the buffalo that was killed, the land that was snatched? Literally, just almost wiping the the Native Americans here off the face of the earth. That's virtually free. You don't think people here are for the free? Man, please. Let's talk about some other free stuff around here. You drinking bottled water tonight? Ask Nestle. How, How is that free working for them? Tapping into Lake Michigan. Getting tax subsidies for being able to drill down into a spring, drawing water out from Lake Michigan, the a natural resource that belonged to the citizens of the country and not paying a quarter for it. That's free. 
living here in the land of the 10,000 lakes and reading lakes virtually drying up overnight. And why are those lakes drying up? For bottled water. They're still in the. They say you, you hear the trucks at night and you wake up and the lakes are almost gone. That's free. So don't tell me that we're not for free or we don't like free things in this country. Don't tell me that Bernie Sanders is too radical. And this is not a pro Bernie spiel. This is that think outside the box, get outside of the plantation, shake free of the politics. Period. It's a damn shame. I had a brother ask me, well, can you name some of the policies that the Clintons enacted that affected you in the 90s? And I'm thinking to myself, hey, where the hell you been? And B, this got to be a trick question. Clearly, if you're African-American, the mass incarceration that Bill Clinton unleashed on us had severe effect on our communities. A lot of uncles, fathers, brothers, cousins, role models in the community. And and, and let me say this. People can't minimize our role models because we allow them to do that punk stuff where they minimize who we look up to. They still talking to you about the Kennedys, and the Kennedy Empire is set up on bootlegging, bootlegging liquor during Prohibition. Nobody will ever tell you to look down on Joe Kennedy. So I got my homeboy Ty Ty in my neighborhood. Older brother to one of my friends, and I'm looking up the tie tie, and he goes away on a 15 year bid. And tie tie might have was keeping my my friend, myself, and a few other friends out of trouble, even though he might have been doing the wrong thing. You take tie tie out of the equation, I lose two or three friends because they were murdered, or or because they decided to fill those shoes. That's what mass incarceration did to the black community. Let's say Ty Ty had a son. Ty Ty's gone for 15 years. The mother didn't wait 15 years for Ty Ty. The son still had to grow. Now he's grown without a father, being there to raise him. He's angry. He's 13, he's 14, he's banging in the hood. He gets killed. But before he gets killed, he took three other lives. His mother's mourning. Three other mothers are mourning. And that's just from taking one individual away. Now just imagine if you got millions of those stories. And it should be a study done on the effects of crack cocaine, mass incarceration, 
and its effects on African-American life. That study needs to be done. It needs to be commissioned. I don't, we don't need it before the election because we already know, but it definitely needs to be done after the election. I'm going to have to sit up with some brothers and sisters and, and see how we can do this. Because it's asinine to me that we have these, you know, we, we have this so-called facade middle class in black community. And when I say by facade, let me explain this. It's this, you know, my mother used to be a booster. She used to steal clothes. Now, of course, she sold to, you know, the hustlers. But also, she stole, she sold a lot of this stuff to middle class people. If you don't believe that middle class black folks don't have connections to black people inside of the ghetto, you're out your damn mind. But what a lot of middle class black people like to play like, they like to play like those black folks, those relatives of those are those other people. They don't have no connection to those people, you know. Those are the other people. You know, those other people, when they suffer, they suffer because, you know, they didn't um, say their prayers at night. They didn't take the vitamins. They're, they're not educated. It's all because of their morality. Those people. And some of the worst vile people that you can meet are considered successful. Some of the pedophiles that, uh, you know, roam in our community are wealthy, middle class. And I'm not trying to put a stain on the black middle class because I think that they're needed. I mean, I'm a part of the black middle class. Let's let's be real. But I know in conversations that I have with a lot of people, the only time that we, you know, a lot of folks want to take credit for the ghetto is when the new fad comes out. That's when they take pride in, oh, yeah, we created that. Outside of that, everything that goes on is almost like we're trying to run from it. And it hurts our people. And right now in this election, with the politics that's going on by the black middle-class middle pundits on television, the Roland Martins, the Joy Reeds, you know, those folks are doing a disservice to our people. They are. And when you think about the disservice that they're doing to our people, it's going to have some grave consequences. But not for them. They'll never be, they're almost like white people, if you will. See, when when they punch us in the face, they never stick around long enough to see the bleeding. After the body dies, after the rigor mortis, they can always show back up with the camera crew. They can always show up with the mic. And they can always make more money off that punch in the face. And say, hey, we're shocked that these things are happening. We didn't know. Just like when I was a kid in the 90s. And you would hear by the older teenagers and older, you know, younger adults would be saying, hey, we don't bring crack here. We don't own no boats. We don't own no planes. How is it getting here? Who's bringing it to us? Why are they bringing it to us? 
And you would have the old head saying, y'all making that up. The federal government wouldn't do that. They would never do that to us. And lo and behold, in late 1998, on television, they showed a hearing. And the hearing was just on that. How the federal government was pushing crack cocaine in our communities. I would love to be making this up, y'all. But this is what the politics and plantation politics look like. Just start talking this Puff the Magic Negro shit. Start being forgetful and forgiving to the Clintons. Say Bernie is asking for a miracle. Meanwhile, you still need to praise white Jesus because he's coming back, you know. Believe in the mothership. Okay. Check. And as long as you believe in all of these things that you may never see or never experience, Everything is going to be all right. We got to shake the plantation, y'all. That's Rant Radio for this week. I just want to give a shout-out to Brother Adrian Mack once again. You know, called in, stepped in. I hit him up last second. Um, I'm glad he came on because I knew Adrian could give a historical context to why the why the Electoral College is set up the way that it is, uh, why the delegates are split. And that's what we needed. We needed context. If you're going to get off the plantation, you need facts. I know a lot of times that I sometimes we we go in the deep end with theories, but I tell you, every theory that I have, I'll do the research on. I'll I'll find out why, and I could almost bet my last dollar that for the past eight years we've been seeing a magic show, and the magic show was all set up to make sure Hillary Clinton becomes the next president of the United States. Uh, with that, hey, y'all, have a great night, and good luck. If you get some sunshine in your area, man, it's normally cold around this time, but the snow is melting around us. Um, make sure you get out and enjoy it. Life is short. It is very short. And, you know, we have to start enjoying life more. Uh, we have to start embracing our inner selves. And, you know, my motto is, you know, my new motto is, you know, you got to divorce yourself from can't-do people. You know, life ain't guaranteed. We live to die. That's fact. We live to die. You know, youthful ignorance is costly. And, you know, we have to know that. We We, we really have to understand that a lot of our people are suffering because of ignorance. That's why the politics work. That's why the old heads can keep back, coming back telling you the same old thing. Even when you present to them the facts, all they're going to do is loud talk you. And the loud talking is because they don't have no substance. They don't have no substance. They lost substance a long time ago. And the sad thing is, you know, when they lost the substance, they never come back and apologize to the people that they've hurt. They just keep telling you, hey, dig deeper. Put your head deeper into that hole. That has to stop, and it has to stop now. Y'all be easy. Y'all be cool. More importantly, 
Y'all be safe. Peace.